Would you, uh, would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, this is your word. And how wonderful it is that you speak to us in your word. Lord, I ask this evening that you would speak. That we might hear your voice. That we might know your love. And that we might grow in your grace, Lord. Would you do that? In us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Our scripture text uh, this evening you will find in Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 through 19. If you're uh, here this evening or if you're watching at home, I ask, open up a Bible. Follow along. Um, we're, in, we're in God's word. Let's, uh, let's dive into it. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you... You who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It is absolutely true and he's given it to us because he loves us. Little theologians in the room or watching at home, uh, welcome. I'm so glad that you have joined us today. Um, I want you if you're young or, or whatever your age is, frankly, I want you to picture something in your mind. Would you picture something for me? Picture your favorite drink. What is it about your favorite drink that makes it your favorite? Here's something to think about. What if someone stopped making your favorite drink? What if they stopped making your favorite drink altogether and they tried to replace it with a different drink? but it was a drink that wasn't as good. Well, if you're 
an adult in here uh, this evening, you know that um, this is exactly the sort of stunt that Coca-Cola tried to play back in 1985. They tried to introduce something new and innovative called New Coke. Did you know this, little kids? Did you know they tried to replace Coca-Cola? They tried to replace Coke. I was reading about this yesterday and I thought it was really funny. Um, New Coke was originally released in places like New York, D.C., some, some uh, big cities, but they, they didn't initially release it, you know, in the place where they had first created it and distributed it. They didn't, they didn't release it at first in, in the South, in the Southeast. And so the big test obviously was going to come when ultimately they decided to launch it broadly in the Southeast. And Coca-Cola found out the hard way that you don't just change Coke and expect Southerners to go along with it. One observer said, one observer said, um, Southerners considered Coca-Cola a fundamental part of their regional identity. They viewed the company's decision to change the formula through the prism of the Civil War as another surrender to the Yankees. One complaint letter received by Coca-Cola asked for the CEO's autograph on the grounds that the signature of one of the dumbest executives in American history would likely become valuable in the future. <laughs> Pepsi had a field day. It wasn't long before the old recipe, the original recipe for Coca-Cola had been relaunched as Coca-Cola Classic. It turns out that you can't beat good old-fashioned why do I bring this up? The church at Colossae. The church at Colossae was the original recipient of this letter by the Apostle Paul. And the Colossians were struggling with a false teaching that was creeping into their world and into the church that claimed to be superior, loftier, and more mature than what Christianity promised. And we don't know everything it entailed, but from Paul's response, we can see that it consisted of some combination of, of Jewish practical uh, practices of piety with some pagan philosophy and some spirituality and asceticism thrown in. If you were at Colossae, wouldn't you want to be seen this way? Wouldn't you want to be seen as someone who's hyper-spiritual, super pious in your observances of the law and the customs of your people? Not only that, but also to be seen as fully enlightened with the best ideas that your culture has to offer. It's the best of both worlds, right? You think about it for a moment. What's more advanced than that? A little bit of everything. You get to judge everybody. The church at Colossae, it seems, is, is maybe not that different from your world and my world today. Our world is more than eager to offer any number of supposed advancements to the primitive ideas of Christianity. But here's the problem. The things we often run to for advancement or growth, maturity, these things so often leave us stunted and worse off than before. And we see this on a societal level. You think about the advancements of science in the last century. Our understanding of physics has grown in the last century. Our understanding of physics and ballistics can tell us the speed and trajectory at which a bullet will fly out the barrel of a gun. But a knowledge of physics can't, can't tell us whether or not to pull the trigger. Knowledge does not necessarily make one wise. And this was a hard lesson that modernized humanity had to learn 
throughout the 20th century, through wars and genocides, thinking that we had grown so much when in fact we had grown so little. Now we're in the information age, 21st century. We live in a world that's obsessed with information. You think about the amount of information that you have at your fingertips. It's astonishing. Has this made us wiser? Do you all feel uh, your wisdom growing the more time you spend on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter, where information is instant and immediate? Information does not make one wise or make one grow. Real growth is from God. And T.S. Eliot, in his uh, poem, Choruses from the Rock, uh, lamented this. He said the following, The endless cycle of idea and action, endless invention, endless experiment, brings knowledge of motion, but not of stillness, knowledge of speech, but not of silence, knowledge of words and ignorance of the word, All our knowledge brings us nearer to our ignorance. All our ignorance brings us nearer to death. But nearness to death, no nearer to God. Where is the life we have lost in living? Where is the wisdom we have lost in knowledge? Where is the knowledge we have lost in information? The cycles of heaven in 20 centuries bring us farther from God and nearer to the dust. Indeed, it seems that if left to our own devices... We would simply mature ourselves straight into immaturity for all the good that our efforts at advancement and improvement do. We have not been left to our own devices. I want to speak to you this morning of where real growth, real life, real vitality come from. These are not things that we manufacture within ourselves or which we can advance toward. They come from Jesus Christ who came to us that we might have life. So there's a a growth that our world desperately seeks after and longs for, but often runs toward in the wrong places, and there is a growth that that we need and that the gospel provides. And I want to speak to you today of the vitality, the growth, the life that Christ offers you right now. There are three things about Christ we're going to zero in on this evening. Christ our walk, Christ our identity, and Christ our life. Christ our walk, Christ our identity, and Christ our life. Let's dive in. Christ our walk. Will you look with me at verses 6 and 7? It says this, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. We're told that there ought to be a distinct connection between receiving Christ and walking in him. And walking is an ongoing theme in the book of Colossians. You see it in every chapter. In chapter 1, verses 9 through 10, Paul speaks of praying for the, the Colossian church. He prays for them to be filled with spiritual understanding and and wisdom so that they might walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him and bearing fruit in every good work. Now here in chapter 2, we're told that as we have received Christ, we are to walk in him. In chapter 3, verse 7, Paul tells us that while we used to walk in many different patterns of sin, now we are to put them to death. 
And finally, in chapter 4, verse 5, he tells us to walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time, instructing us to present a winsome witness to a watching world. What's walking all about? As humans, we use walking to get from point A to point B. It's motion paired with purpose. Standing still involves no motion. Walking, on the other hand, is deliberate, intentional movement. It's the accumulation of one step after another into continuous action. The Bible is not here instructing us to adopt a certain kind of gait or strut. In your Bible, walking is about how you live your life. The continuous, purposeful actions that you commit to, one after another after another. We're called to live in perpetual motion alongside and toward Christ. That's what it means to walk in him. Little theologians, um, if, you're, if you're here tonight or if you're watching at home, um, our children's ministry staff and publication staff have put together this thing, which is, this is an awesome bulletin that they made just for you, just for you. And there's some awesome stuff in here. There's some really cool stuff in here. Um, Elijah Harris did, like, a drawing that you can color in in here. Um, We've got some really cool questions you can look at. One of the questions that you'll see um, in this bulletin is the question, how does Christ help me grow? How does Christ help me grow? Well, little theologians, I'll tell you this. One of the ways Christ helps us grow, one of the ways Christ helps us grow is by inviting us to walk with him, to walk in him. That means to stay close to him, to be connected to him. That's how Christ helps us grow. Let's look here at the the other verbs that you you might see here in verses uh, 6 and 7. We see uh, verbs like rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught abounding in thanksgiving. This is what vitality and growth looks like. It's this picture of a, of a tree or a plant that sends its roots down deep into the gospel, is fed and nourished and built up in the gospel, growing in the gospel, and then it becomes established. As it grows, each trunk, each branch is strengthened and reinforced by the gospel. Finally, this tree bears fruit. It abounds with an abundance of fruit, the kind of fruit that only a healthy tree can produce. This tree is not static. It functions this way because it is in purposeful motion with and in Christ. Question. Is this you? Is this you? If you don't see these things in your life, this rootedness, this establishment, this abundance of fruit, if you don't see these things in your life, it's appropriate to ask yourself the question, have I received Christ? And if you're here this morning and you have not received Christ, I tell you, he offers you all of these things and more. Freely, out of the abundance of his own love, he offers these things to you. Receive him today. You were made to be rooted in something deep and unshakable. Your heart was made to grow. Your soul was meant to expand day by day with a greater and greater capacity to love and be loved. The gospel presents to us a reality in which our lives are strengthened by Christ, even as our circumstances rise and fall. Is that true of you? Or are you tossed to and fro by the anxieties of life? Is your life abounding with 
thanksgiving and joy. Those things can be true of you in Christ. Colossians 2 directs our attention to that this evening. But I tell you, and I speak to to all of us here, Christians included, this text informs us that one can receive Christ and still struggle to walk in him. We need to be spurred on to walk with and in Christ. Is your life filled with misery or is it filled with abundant joy and thanksgiving? When I think of abundant joy and thanksgiving, I so often think of it less as, a, as something that you, you merely feel and more, more as a discipline, like walking. If I'm being honest with myself, I often look at my own life and I see a little bit of both. I see a little bit of misery here, a little bit of joy there. The good news, the good news of the gospel is that a walk with Christ happens one step at a time. Growth happens when you take the next step with Jesus. If you don't know him today, receive him. If you have received him, walk in him. It brings me to my second point, Christ, our identity. Take a look with me at verse 8 saying, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to... To Christ. We live in a world that places a very high value on the concept of identity. Our society places a high value on personal freedom, personal autonomy, personal choice. Much of that is right and good. God cares for you on the individual personal level. But Paul offers us a warning here in verse 8. Do you see it? We are easily taken captive. And he uses several cryptic phrases to talk about that. You see phrases like philosophies, deceits, traditions, and spirits. Calvin here says that um, it's not philosophy that, uh, per se that creates a danger in your life and mine, but rather the type of philosophy that, that involves you contriving to be wise through your own understanding, your own pursuits of understanding, perhaps a life of lofty thoughts with no substance, with no lived action behind them. And then there's empty deceit, which evokes beliefs that are simply meant to lead astray from the get-go. Of course, there's value in traditions, and many of us have traditions that we hold dear, and that's good. But the danger with tradition is that you might end up running after something because it's just it's what we've always done. With no regard for the original intent or significance behind those traditions. And then there's elemental spirits, and this is just bizarre. Uh, the Greek word there is stoicheia, which evokes um, the image of, of elements. Um, you, th- you think of uh, the, the elemental building blocks of the world is the, the picture that, that would have been drawn out of a word like that in the ancient world. And you're meant to think of things like earth or fire or water, things like that. The, these elements would have been associated with false gods in pagan culture, False gods who promised fortune, fertility, and security. And we're so quick to dismiss this as another world, right? We don't, eh, we don't have, like, idols and false gods in our world anymore, right? Right? We think we're so, so much more advanced than that. But we have, we have false gods in this world. We, we, are, so, we are so easily 
enthralled and bamboozled by the siren songs of our cultural mantras and our ideological rallying cries. We're so easily taken in by ideologies that promise us fortune or security. We're quick to adopt these as fundamental points of our identity. But the Bible says we must not be taken captive by them. But instead, we are to be captivated by Christ. Filled with Christ. United to Christ. Your identity, my identity, must be Christ. And that's what this section of text is all about. I want you to just just look at it with me. Do you see it? Verses 9 through 15, in seven verses, Paul is going to repeat the words in him or with him seven times. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God, God made alive together with him having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. And this is all over Colossians. This is all over this book of the Bible. In four chapters, Paul directs us that we are in Christ or with Christ at least 15 times. Sisters and brothers, to be a Christian, if it is anything, is to be in Christ. This is your identity. Now look with me at verse 11. Circumcision is uh, talked about a lot here. There's this whole section talking about circumcision. What's this about? Circumcision for the Israelite was a physical mark of a spiritual reality. It said in fairly unambiguous terms, I belong to God. If you took an Israelite man and laid him bare, there would be no doubt. In the place where he was most vulnerable, he bore a sign that he was the Lord's. What would happen, Christian, if your heart was laid bare? We're told that a Christian has received a circumcision made without hands by putting off a different sort of body, the spiritual flesh of sin and death. How? by the circumcision of Christ, by the baptism of Christ, having been buried with him and raised with him. And maybe you're like me and you're already kicking yourself there in the pew or at home. I I don't want my heart to be laid bare. I don't want people to see what my heart looks like. I don't even want the Lord to see what my heart looks like. My heart's not good enough. But don't you see, brothers and sisters, don't you see The circumcised heart is not something you accomplish. An Israelite did not circumcise himself. Look at me. You were dead and buried. You've been raised if you are in Christ. You didn't do this to yourself. You were entirely passive. That's the picture we have in baptism. And verse 12 says, you look to him in faith. I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. Jesus saved you through the powerful working of God 
by bearing the punishment you deserved and by imputing, transferring, giving his righteousness, his perfection, his circumcised heart to you. That's what baptism depicts. That's what the gospel's all about. Your circumcised heart made new. What does the newly circumcised, baptized heart look like? It looks like you, in the place where you are most vulnerable, in your heart of hearts, being marked by Christ. You're bound to him in death and in life. It's not what I have done, for apart from nothing. It's all him, all the time. And praise God that in the midst of my imperfections, in the midst of my utter unworthiness, I have a perfect and worthy Savior, and he loves me. We think of maturity so often as steadily increasing stoicism, steadily increasing lack of feeling, a sort of cynicism, a stealing off of the self against the threats of the world. When you're in Christ, maturity looks a lot more like vulnerability. Fewer and fewer attempts to mask your flaws and hide your hurts because we have a redeemer for our flaws and our hurts. You don't have to heal yourself. Healing and new growth comes from Christ. And if you believe in him, you are in him. And sometimes it looks messy, right? Sometimes it looks painful. I'll ask my, my students, right? If you're, if you're one of my students in here, or if you're watching at home, how do, how do shin splints feel? You guys remember shin splints? They're awful. Shin splints feel terrible, right? That's, but that's growth. That's growth. Why do we not just tolerate, but, but actually rejoice when we see children squirming, crying, or even acting out in the pews of this church? Because that's growth. Yes, it feels messy sometimes. Growth is messy. But God is in it. God is in it. We are not in pursuit of a higher formality. We are in pursuit of Christ. We are here to grow in Christ. And brothers and sisters, that child squirming in the pew is a profound picture of what you and I so often look like before God. We are not so different. And you parents who uh, continue to care for and shepherd your children and raise them up in the Lord to know and love Jesus, you guys are heroes. I want to say that today on this, this Father's Day. Look with me, uh, will you, at verse 13. You who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. You see that? We're so quick to just skim right over the word all when it shows up in Scripture. He didn't just forgive you five of your trespasses. He didn't forgive you a baker's dozen. He forgave all of them. How did he do this? Jesus did this by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He bore them himself. And he disarmed the rulers and authorities, these false gods in your world and mine. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. In Christ's death and resurrection, the wisdom of the world is exposed 
for the folly that it is. These things we run to for growth and maturity, they're exposed for how impoverished they are. And real growth and maturity is presented to us in Christ. You want to be made new? Go to the cross. The wisdom of God shines there. Third point, Christ, our life. Take a look with me here at verse uh, 16, verses 16 through 19. It says, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. Verse 16 says, let no one pass judgment on you. About what? Like these, these questions of food and drink, regard to festival, new moon, or Sabbath. Well, why not? Why shouldn't we let people pass judgment on us about these things, right? These are the sorts of things that, that so often most visibly mark you as, as a believer, right? What you eat or drink, what you abstain from, what you do with your time, and where you hang out on a Sunday evening. The Bible says that these things are just a shadow of the things to come. The substance, literally the the word is is the body, the, the fleshly, physical body, the thing that you can reach out and touch about these things, that belongs to Christ. It's not saying that how you eat or drink doesn't matter. It's not saying that Sabbath observance doesn't matter. The Sabbath is the fourth of the Ten Commandments. But first and foremost, before the Sabbath is anything else, it is a matter of the heart. This comes back to relying on Jesus. Receiving the sufficiency of Jesus on the cross, he said, it is finished. So rest. Verse 18 says, let no one disqualify you. We are to assume that whoever was driving this heresy, these leaders who were driving this heresy, they were using their influence to exclude others based on their own ascetic practices or or visions. They were were looking at their own ability to, as verse 21 says, uh, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. They were saying, we can abstain. Look how spiritual we are. We don't need these things. And they, they based it on their puffed-up mind, their claims of visions and spiritual experiences. And these, these visions, whatever they were, ironically, they were actually taking these heretical leaders away from the head, away from Jesus Christ. They were detaching themselves from the head. We're talking about vitality and growth in the church. And we must recognize, believers, We must recognize that we find vitality and growth not in repeated traditions or in innovations of religious experience. Growth comes from God, and it starts in your heart. This passage concludes with Paul telling us that the whole body grows with a growth that is from God through connective tissues, joints, and ligaments, always holding fast to what? To the head. As Jesus said in the Gospel of John 15, 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. 
You are branches. You live and grow by staying connected, by abiding in the vine, by abiding in Christ. We don't need new Coke. Some of you may be tempted to sit back and say, but the gospel isn't, it's, it's not deep enough. The gospel is just not deep enough. It's pretty shallow. Um, I want higher, loftier, better thoughts, better philosophies to live my life around. Let me tell you, if, if you think the gospel, if you think the gospel isn't deep, you have not yet learned to swim. You're hanging out in the shallows wearing floaties when the gospel is an ocean. Swim in it. The gospel, Jesus Christ, is an ocean. You can't reach the, the, you can't reach the bottom of the gospel. We don't need to seek greater enlightenment because if you've met Christ, you've met the source of light itself. Colossians 1 tells us that Jesus was there when light was spoken into existence. Colossians 1 saying, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible or invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. All things were created and are sustained through Christ, even light itself. Not only that, but in Christ, what has God done? God has delivered us from the domain of darkness forever. And he's transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. We don't need to seek higher wisdom. If you've met Christ, you've met the source of all wisdom. Ironically, the more you get bogged down by the supposed innovations of human wisdom and spirituality, the farther you get from the real deal. Chapter 3 says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died. And your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. That's incredible. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. We don't need to pursue greater mysteries. We're told in Colossians 1, that God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. What mystery? Christ in you. The hope of glory. Christ in you. You want a mystery? Christ in you. Think about that. Colossians 2 tells us the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery are found only in Christ. What do we need? You know it, right? We, we need Christ. Christ is our life. Christ is the source of our growth and vitality. Christ is what animates us. There is, there is an enlightenment, a higher wisdom, a profound mystery that we are to pursue. It's the gospel of Christ. 
No other mystery compares. No other enlightenment compares. No higher wisdom compares to the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's ironic that this heresy that Paul was combating at Colossae, this heresy doesn't even exist anymore. We don't even know exactly what it is and its finer points and, and details. Hasn't withstood the accumulation of time as new and newfangled as it was. What has withstood the accumulation of time? The gospel. Don't live your life chasing the newest fads and trends. It takes very little time for the newest things to become yesterday's relics. If you want something that's always new, that never grows stale, put your hope in the eternal God who renews you day by day. God has made a way for you and I to be made new through the precious blood of his son who died for us and rose again from the dead. Brothers and sisters, that's, that's what the growth of the church is all about. Through ages and centuries, the church continues to grow because the church is united to him. Christ is our walk. Christ is our identity. Christ is our life. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we give you thanks that you have made a way for us to be united to you. And that way is Christ. Lord, we give you thanks for your great love. We give you thanks that there is nothing greater than your love. There is nothing higher than your wisdom. There is nothing deeper than following you. Lord, we give you thanks. You have been so good to us. Would you let us be marked by you walking in you, trusting in you, living in you, growing in you, finding our identity in you? Would you do that in us today, this moment, and this week, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.